Gateway, happy Sunday to you. A couple things before we get into our teaching today. This little dynamic here where I'm at Midday Studios and we're recording these teachings kind of beforehand earlier in the week, this is gonna be the last time, at least for a little while, unless we have to be flexible again and uh, we impose ourselves on Logan and his studio. Uh, but this doesn't mean this is going away. This format of us having a digital space together has been a gift for our community. It's allowed us when, if you can recall this far back at the beginning of the pandemic, to shift entirely online, to pivot. You know, So at that time we were meeting at Central Campus and uh, Des Moines Public Schools kind of shut down those large gathering spaces. And so we were able to, on a dime, kind of turn in this medium became the space where we were continuing to gather around the Word of God, to be shaped and formed by the living presence of God. And though we were apart interpersonally, we were gathering together, having little chats and all of that, and got to the point where we have this platform that we're interacting on right now, dsm.online.church, and, and we'll continue to do that except it'll be a little bit different. You see, rather than having pre-recorded things, we're, we're going to have it live. And for those of you who've been faithful, I just honor you. Thank you for engaging in this space. And I hope that it will continue to serve you as long as you need it. The, the function that I love the most about this little digital community that has kind of formed in this season is the ability to gather right after our uh, online gathering at 10 a.m. And that little online gathering will not change. We will continue to have a prompt where you can go and you can get together, the little Zoom call will launch, the, the folks who lead that will continue to enter into that space and um, love our community well through this season. So if you have any questions on what does that look like in the forthcoming season, how, how are we doing this? Um, gosh, please reach out. We would love to have there be clarity there. And then this is a second little note. You know, as we transition from this space to doing live, um, streaming, that kind of turns the volume up on production. And what does that mean for a Sunday gathering and who's doing that? So if at any point in your life, you're like, I have set up stereo equipment <laughs> and you think, I know how to follow directions. Well, you are perfectly qualified to be trained, to learn, to do this. We're trying to put together a team of four to five people who could own this space with uh, Logan, who kind of has oversees our tech and production stuff and our audios and videos, like would be led by him through that. And so if that is a place uh, where you say, man, I, I, for a season, I can definitely lean into that and give the gifts that I have back to this community. We too would love uh, to receive that as a gift for our community. So you can connect into that, uh, info at thegatewaychurch.com. And so without further ado, um, we'll continue in this series on emotional health and the way of Jesus. And before we do, let me just pray, invite the Spirit of the living God to draw our attention to him. So if you would, uh, just in a posture of receiving, join me. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, a community of eternal love that we know and call God, we thank you. We thank you for the, like, the faithfulness of the women and men who call this little community home, and that you are in a, your own unique way according to our season of life and our temperament. You are drawing us near to yourself. 
We just ask that through your word, through the story of John the Baptist today, that you would help us to see who we are, to see who we're not, and through your wisdom and your spirit to receive the gift of the limits of our life as the things they truly are, as a gift from you in our journey with Jesus. And so, Jesus, we ask that you would come, that you would meet us with your person and presence through the power of your spirit. In your name, Jesus, amen. So over these past few weeks, about a month or so, we've begun to explore emotional health, the way of Jesus, and how those two things come together in our lives. And this might feel like an odd component in your discipleship to Jesus, pursuing emotional health. That seems a little odd. And it has become clear to me that though they're not the same, emotional health and spiritual maturity cannot be disconnected. As this little saying from Pete Scazzaro goes, you cannot be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. So the whole goal of this time, of this little series, is to shape the cultural imagination of our community so that we might be a people who are being formed by the living presence of God in every aspect of our life. Like we, of course, want God to show up in the physical realm and social and intellectual. Like we, we want God to, to show up and to guide us and lead us in most aspects of our life. And yet there is this space, our, we'll call it this emotional aspect of our life where we are more or less unfamiliar. And that's what we're doing here is we're, we're leaning into this space because we cannot be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. And so we want to step into, to put on maturity. And I don't think I've shared this yet, not for a good or bad reason, no particular reason at all. Uh, but this series, this, um, these, this, I don't know, series of talks and conversations around emotional health, they come in response to a question. The question is this. If you could go back to the beginning of 2020, pre-pandemic, and prepare for it, what would you do? This question was not asked directly to me. I just kind of heard it in the midst of another conversation, and it got me thinking. I thought I would, I would do this. I would do a, a, a series exactly like this to invite our community to journey with Jesus by the power of his very personal presence to those beneath the surface layers of our lives so that we might see who we are, so we might know who we are, so that we might know what God is inviting us to and how who we are shapes what God is inviting us to. And I think that it's easy, especially in the season that we're in now, to kind of look back or even to look forward with some what-ifs in hand. And so that we don't get caught looking back or consumed by the fear of the future, we want to enter into this with Jesus so that we might be present to this moment where he's calling out to us to be more of who we are in him. More on that in a moment. See, I just, I simply say all this to acknowledge that the stuff that we're entering into, this beneath the surface layers of our life, murky as they may be, like this is hard. Like the way of Jesus and emotional health, this, this is, is hard. And coming face to face with the trauma that we carry in our bodies, like that alone can be daunting. 
but, but then, you know, I was just thinking to a few weeks back and you know, we, we did this light talk on generational sin. If you can recall, the basic premise of that whole talk was that um, the sin of the fathers extends the third and fourth generation. And it's not like we are here um, paying a cosmic debt due to the divine for something great grandma or grandpa did. No, it's, it's just that our past shapes our present. And so we looked at past patterns of sin specifically. So it's like it's one thing to look our trauma in our face. It's another thing to see generation after generation after generation of sin coming to bear on our lives. This, this can be hard. This can unearth some things that we've done a really good job at pushing down. But you see, I, as I was thinking about this, I was... I was thinking about how this can bring both clarity and confusion. See, we're able to see ourselves a little bit more clearly because now we have, we're able to make some sense of the patterns that are in our lives. I mean, be it perfectionism or anxiety or whatever that thing may be, we can make a little bit more sense of it because of our ability to look at our past, our family of origin. Do we have some clarity? But we also have some confusion when we begin to look here because we aren't quite sure what to do with this new information. <laughs> we, we aren't quite sure how to contextualize it into the rest of our lives. Like, how does it shape my relationships? What, what do I do with these past patterns, whether they're good, bad, or indifferent? You see, suffice it to say, emotional health, and the way of Jesus moving into like the healing of our whole persons in, in union with God, this takes time. Embracing brokenness and living in vulnerability, allowing healing to come to the place of pain, these things take time. And just like our physical health, emotional health is not something that we can just switch a flip on and all of a sudden everything's okay. See, our pain will not be resolved in a single teaching like this. It's not going to be resolved in some like worshipful reflection, you journaling and praying a couple mornings a week, or even just like a good cry or something. It, it will take those things plus some time. See, emotional health and our discipleship to Jesus, it takes time. And this, this, this odd thing, time itself, this can feel like one of the greatest challenges we face as we pursue emotional health. As we seek to grow in our capacity to notice and name and attend to and love the things going on in and around us, time can feel like this insurmountable hurdle. How many of you have uttered the words, if there was just one more hour in the day, or, or, or what I wouldn't give for one more day in the week. So the problem with that is, of course, that we get one more hour or one more day and then we will fill that hour or those 24 hours with the same type of stuff that we're doing the rest of those days and weeks and hours. You see, today I want us to attend, to look at, to inspect and unpack that tension, the limit of our life. 
And to do so, I just invite you to turn with me to the Gospel according to John. If you're new to the Library of Scriptures, the Gospels are these biographies of Jesus' life and ministry. Um, no shame in, in looking at the little like table of contents in your paper Bible, or if you're just flipping on, if you're tapping on over there, then you'll just see John. It's the, the fourth one in in the New Testament. You just tap that little guy right there. And John chapter one, we're gonna pick up with John the Baptist uh, in John chapter 1 starting in verse 19. So looking at the limits of our life, to unpack that, turn with me now to John 1 19. Now this was John's testimony. When the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. And to stop right there for a moment, you may recall from the year plus we spent in the gospel according to Mark, another one of those biographies of Jesus' life and ministry, that these Jewish leaders had great power. They had amassed social and political power, not to mention religious power, because unlike today where we separate church and state, there it was all joined together. And in their context, they're living under the oppression of the Roman Empire, and so they are an occupied people and territory. And some of those leaders, they would cozy up next to the powers that be. And in this moment, we see that those leaders, they have sent a delegate of, of sort, presumably in response to this perceived threat from this raggedy Hebrew prophet, John the Baptizer. And so they send their delegates out to interrogate him. And then John, the author of the gospel, kind of drops us back into the scene in verse 20. And we pick up with this statement, he, that is John the Baptizer, he did not fail to confess. He confessed freely, I am not. The Messiah. So apparently these delegates, the Levites and priests, they're pressing John. They're interrogating him, looking for some sort of confession. And so the question that they ask, at least as we get it here, is are you the Messiah? In other, in other words, are you the Christ? Are you the one that the people of Israel have longed for? The one who would throw the yoke of the oppressors off our back and establish God's rule in reign? Are you the one that we've hoped for? To this, John says, nope. And then in verse 21, they go on, they ask him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? And that might be an odd question to you. Well, there was this um, hope, this kind of prophetic hope that before the new age, the age to come, which we, we describe as the renewal of all things, before that went down, Elijah was said to come back in the flesh, so the great prophet. And so they're like, are you that guy? Are you Elijah? John says, nope. So are you the prophet? Again, another hope going all the way back to the, the Torah, kind of the, the foundation stories for the people of Israel. In Deuteronomy, there's this hope that one like Moses would come and speak to Israel directly on God's behalf. Restoration would break out. So are you the prophet? No. John's not the Messiah. Son Elijah, he's not the prophet. And so in verse 22, we read this. Finally, they said, who are you? <laughs> Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. Now they're accountable to the leaders, so they have to take something to him. What do you say about yourself, John? Verse 23, John replied, in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness, make straight the way for the Lord. This is what John says. 
So when John finally gives an answer other than no, he does so in a bit of an odd way, I think at least to us. John casts himself into the prophetic role. This role that is outlined in Isaiah 40, it's the voice of the one calling in the wilderness. And, and so when his moment comes to call out in the wilderness, to, to then act out of this role outlined in Isaiah 40, with great flourish, he does so. Look down to verse 29. The next day, so this is after the interrogation, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look or behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. And then in verse 32, John gives this testimony. I saw the spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. That is Jesus. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify, and check this out, that this is God's chosen one, God's anointed one, this one. This is like the encoded language that says this is the Messiah. So notice that John knows who he is and therefore John knows who he is not. This is called clarity, <laughs> clarity about identity. And, and for me, when I seek clarity or when I seek understanding, I, I know at some level I'm trying to seek control. I'm trying to understand where I am at and where others are. And if I can see it all clearly, then I can know how to maneuver myself in the midst of the world. How do I position myself to attend to the outcome of my liking? But John, he's, when he's like saying these things, when he's arriving at clarity, he's not doing so to jockey for position. He's not doing so to seek control. He's doing something a bit different. This is what his clarity yields. Look down with me to verse 35. This is the next day. John was there again doing the baptism stuff. And with two of his disciples, when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. And when the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. It's kind of a curious moment, is it not? See, John's clarity about who he is and who he is not ends up looking like a loss. Then in a short while, we read about a similar dynamic unfolding. Turn, turn the page uh, to John chapter 3. Go with me. We're going to pick up in verse 22. Jesus and his disciples went out in the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now, John was also baptizing at Enon near Salim because there was plenty of water there. And people were coming and being baptized. This was before John was put in prison. Now, that verse 24 is this little parenthetical thought, which essentially tells us that later John the Baptizer is going to be imprisoned. In fact, uh, spoiler alert, John the Baptizer is going to be beheaded. So uh, it's just for the narrative's sake, like the author John is saying, Jesus and John are at the same place, positioned near one another. And this is the interaction that unfolds. Verse 25, an argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over a matter of ceremonial washing. 
They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, remember, behold, look, the Son of God, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, that testimony, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. Just take stock of this for a moment. First, John points to Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and then his disciples leave. Then, two pages later, everyone is going to Jesus. There's been just a little bit of development in the life of Jesus. I mean, he had a pretty powerful interaction with Nicodemus just earlier on in the chapter. And, and yeah, so Jesus has been doing some powerful things, but my goodness, everyone. And when I read the first departure in John 1, like I felt this grief for John, mainly because it's a pretty accessible emotion in this season. If you're aware of like the life of many churches, ours included, man, it is just really easy to leave. And so I read this and I was like, ooh, I felt some of the pangs. <laughs> and I'm just like, I wonder if John was feeling that. No idea. And yet I, I read this and I'm like, oh my goodness, like this has been a season littered with division and strife in and outside the church. And so my mind, it just went there in chapter one and then you get to chapter three and everyone is leaving John for another rabbi named Jesus. And I was just surprised by how caught off guard I was by my feelings of grief over John's situation. And then I, I was equally caught off guard with John's response to his situation. See, John's not phased. Look at his, his response in the next verse. This is verse 27. To this John replied, and this is beautiful, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. Imagine if this was something you said every day you were on your way to work, whether that was in the basement at your kitchen table or you're going back downtown, whatever, wherever you find yourself working, you just said, a person can only receive what is given them from heaven. I can only receive what is given me from heaven. John goes on in verse 28, you yourselves can testify that I said I'm not the Messiah, but I'm sent ahead of him. And he tells this little story to illustrate his point here. The bride belongs to the bridegroom, Jesus. And the friend, in this case, John, who attends to the bridegroom, Jesus, waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and is now complete. He must become greater and I must become less. Maybe your translation says he must increase and I must decrease. So to recap, John comes on the scene, calling the people of Israel into this renewal movement to, to renew their devotion to the one true God. And people come, not just in like small numbers, people come in droves to John to receive this baptism of repentance, this turning, this about face in their devotion to God. And so intense is this draw to John the Baptist uh, that people are sent questioning him. Who are you? What is this movement? What's going on? And then John the Baptist, he's essentially done his job. Like his job was to prepare the way, to make straight the way of the Lord. And he sees Jesus and he sees the one on whom the spirit rests and he does his job. He does his what you could say. And then everyone just leaves Notice that John's not bitter with Jesus. 
He doesn't bash Jesus' ministry. He doesn't vilify the disciples who left. John does something different. Instead, he says a person can only receive what is given them from heaven. It's like he is seeking his meaning and his identity and his source of well-being from a place that is not contingent on what he's doing. And what is it in the end that John receives? I mean, he himself tells us. Joy. And it's now complete. Just keep that in mind for a moment. Because John, he celebrated Jesus even when it was at a great cost to himself, or at least a perceived cost from our vantage point. And this just makes me wonder, could we do the same? Seriously, what about you? Could you celebrate the good of another, the well-being, the success of another? What about, uh, could you celebrate the success of another if it came at personal cost to you? And could you do that genuinely? And I say genuinely with great intent because I think we both know that we can celebrate a person. We can smile and nod and eat the cake or whatever with the person. And inside, there's something else going on. Some bitterness, some envy, some jealousy, maybe something a bit more intense. (laughs) So perhaps right now, you feel this little objection rising up in you. You're thinking, well, that's not even a fair question. Like, what, what would I do? Like, what do you, what do you mean? What, what about you? Would you, could I genuinely celebrate another's success? Like, like, John was a prophet. John was out in the wilderness. He was eating bugs and honey, and John had this intimate relationship with the Lord. I mean, we, you yourself just read the story where he's hearing from the one who sent him clearly, the divine, the Father, that he would see this one on whom the Spirit rests. So he can recognize the Spirit when it rests on somebody like a duck. Like, clearly, I am not John. So yeah, maybe John can do that. But I don't really think that's for me. Well, why not? What, what stands in the way of you celebrating the success of another, even if it comes at a cost to you? Well, I, th- I think I have a response to this. And I could be wrong, but this is it. Short answer. We don't yet know who we are, what God's inviting us to, and how who we are shapes what God is inviting us to. Or to say it, I think, in a bit more of a concise way, we've yet to receive the limits of our own unique who and what. We've yet to receive the limits of our own unique who and what, and this is not the case for John. See, John knew the limits of his own unique who and what, and for the remainder of our time, that's what we're gonna do. We're just gonna unpack the who, the what, and the limits. So the who, John knew who he was, and we see this in part because he knew who he wasn't. And this is somewhat intuitive, but then it just becomes abundantly clear in that little interrogation. Are you the Messiah? Nope. Elijah? Nope. Uh, the prophet? Got the wrong guy. See, for John, his vision of who he is, it comes from a different place. And this is, this is critical. For John, his vision for his life, who he was, his identity, it was rooted in the scriptures and his understanding of himself in light of the scriptures. In other words, the word of God was not static or flat or just a historical document. It was living and active and it shaped his whole person. We we, we see this specifically in that little quote he draws out from Isaiah 40. 
the voice of one calling in a wilderness. And now this, this character doesn't have a name. It's not like the voice of one calling in the wilderness, parent, like open parenthesis, John the Baptist, close parenthesis. No, as John is reading this and seeing how his life is unfolding with increasing intimacy with the Father, like he sees that this is who he is. This is God's unique role for him. And now just as a caveat, um, am I saying you too have a unique John the Baptist role? Not really. <laughs> like, and absolutely. See, you are not John the Baptist. I am not John the Baptist. I, I, when I read Isaiah 40, I don't see myself as one who is in the wilderness to make straight the paths of the Lord or for the Lord. Like that's not my... That's not for me. I don't see myself into that role. And yet there is something. When I am called by God in Christ as a follower of Jesus, as a disciple of Jesus, there is something for me there. And we'll get to that in a moment. And so, no, I'm not, I'm not saying you need to be John the Baptist. All I'm saying is that for John, the scriptures inform who he is. They help him to see who he is and then to live from that place. So he sees himself as a part of God's unfolding story. He knows who he is, and because he knows who he is, he knows that he is rooted in God's story. The same is true for you, the same is true for me, if we'll receive it as such. And maybe that feels a little bit cliche, and if that's, a, if that's how you feel about it, that's okay. Um, but but if, you don't know, if you don't yet know what the scriptures say about you, then it's likely that you feel this slow burn of discontent around who you are. And more, my guess is that John's path to self-discovery even seems odd to you. It's likely because we and you and me, like we have swam in these societal waters whose currents lead us to seek understanding about who we are in our desires. Like we're to go to our desires as the well, as the source, as the place of meaning and significance. And then, we're to follow those desires where they may lead. That's why we hear, be true to yourself. That's essentially saying, follow your desires where they may lead. And this, of course, it is a, it's an overgeneralization, but I, I think it's helpful to note that that line of reasoning, it runs contrary to God's invitation. Because first, um, it fails to recognize the breadth of desires that they're a gift from God. Like desires are good, but they are not the ultimate good. And, and it's easier, in especially the church, to think that desires are evil. And so it's easy just to vilify them and to distance ourselves from our desires. But they're a gift from God. You see, we, we can actually receive the invitation to be aware of our desires and then to have control over them where they compromise our union with God. So we can do something with our desires. We can interact with them. I think, actually, we must interact with them. But be ruled by them? Follow them where they lead? No, no, no. The invitation with God is something different. And I saw this recently play out in a pretty powerful way. You know, I'm, I'm a little late to the game on this one, but I'm finally getting around to Michelle Obama's autobiography. And maybe that's like an entire miss for the context of our community. Or maybe you just like uh, saw the Netflix special or just the commercial for it on Netflix or something. Uh, but I'm enjoying it. So anyways, <laughs> what I've noticed so far in this autobiography is that time and time again, she revisits her struggle with being who she is in the time and place she is. She's asking questions like, 
But what does it mean to be a smart and industrious black woman in America? And, and then nested within that question is this other question, like, am I enough? And what has become apparent is that Michelle Obama is essentially wrestling with the limits of her own unique who and what. And her desires often have the final say in the matter. See, part of knowing who we are is knowing who we are not. And the invitation, at least the one that we encounter with John, is to seek our who as a part of God's story. Because elsewhere, there will be stories that lead us to seek our who in the midst of our desires. And yet, the invitation from God to seek who we are in the midst of his story is so critical because who we are informs what we do. And so, like, if, if you don't know who you are, if you're a follower of Jesus, just consider the following statements. I'm going to go through them rather quick. But these are what are true about you. In other words, this is who you are if you are with Jesus. You are the salt and light of the earth. You've been given a spirit of power, love, and self-control, not fear. You can find grace and mercy in time of need. You are hidden with Christ in God. You are complete in Christ. You have been redeemed and forgiven of all of your sins. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. You are a citizen of heaven. You know that God will complete the good work he started in you. You may approach God with freedom and confidence. You are God's workmanship. You have direct access to him through the Holy Spirit. You've been adopted by God as his own child. You have, you're a saint. You're a minister of reconciliation for God. You're a new creation. You're established, anointed, sealed. You are a member of Christ's body. It goes on and on. See, who we are. It informs what we do because what we do flows out of who we are. It is important. It is a must that we know who we are. And if you're a follower of Jesus, it's got to be linked up with what is true about you with Jesus. And there's this teaching that's kind of mixed into church spaces, and it goes something like this. It is who you are that matters. Yes, amen. Not what you do. I don't know about that. So I get the sentiment of this teaching, we are not defined primarily by our output or our accomplishments. To that, yes and amen. And as I was thinking about this more, that latter part, not what you do, it's, it's who you are that matters, not what you do. I just don't think that latter part is biblically coherent. That is to say, I don't think it comes from a well-formed biblical imagination. See, we can easily fall into the thinking and saying, well, I'm a human being, not a human doing. Therefore, I need to pour all of my focus into who I am. But unfortunately, this comes at the detriment of our doing. And then we're afraid of doing. And perhaps we think, oh, is this like works righteousness? If that means anything to you, it's not. See, this whole being and doing dichotomy, pitting the one against the other, it just misses the point. And it devalues both. See, we are to be with Jesus and therefore discover who we are, and we are to do with Jesus and live out of who we are. It's not that we are to be with Jesus and then do according to our own ambitions or desires. No, the two go together. What we do grows out of who we are. But you know what? If we don't know who we are, then our what? Man, it takes a whole lot of power in our life. Many of my peers are in the midst of trying to figure out their what. 
And the problem is that we're often looking for our what to tell us who we are when God just has something way more interesting to say about you. Now, our what may not be the thing that gives us a paycheck. And this might be hard for you to believe because I, like, I know like we want our work to have meaning and purpose. I totally feel that. Like we, we want to impact the world for good, like build one another up. Yes and amen. But what you do for money, gosh, I don't know how much God cares about that. That's not to say it's inconsequential, like how you make money, the ethics of what you do. But we are really quick to dress up what we do in the language of calling. I've been called by this. And now I don't stand here and like I'm not throwing shade at that. I'm not questioning God's connection to you and what he is inviting you into. It's just, I think, and I've seen this, I've experienced it with myself, to dress up something I want to do and call it calling. Identify it as, I spiritualize it for good and for bad. So my point here is that if you're with Jesus, everything is already yours. All the meaning, all the significance, all of the value is yours with Jesus. Paul will say to this church in Ephesus that every spiritual blessing is yours in Christ Jesus. It's, it's up in the heavens for you. It's stored, imperishable, unfading, as Peter would say. My goodness, it is yours. Everything else, that's just gravy, baby. That's my point. See, if John staked his identity on what he did, then when everyone left and went to Jesus, it would have crushed him. But do you remember his response? Joy is mine and it is now complete. And I could be wrong here. You know, I've only lived for like three-ish decades. So definitely have a lot to learn. The more I sit with our community, the more confident I am that our what is something we unearth in union with God and one another. Something we discover. So just like try stuff on. And you try that on from a place of security, knowing that regardless of what you do, Oh, no, let me, let me pull that one back. Not regardless of what you do. Rather, that what you do does not have the greatest bearing on your life. It certainly does have a large impact, but it does not have the greatest impact. And just like our who, there are unique limitations to our what. See, we, we may have grown up affirming that all people are created equal. This is this American ideal, and this is actually rooted. It extends from God's original blessing over humanity in Genesis 1 and 2, and um, you know, this American ideal that irrespective of race, gender, class, creed, ability, there's dignity. Well, that comes from the scriptures. Like the, the origins of that are from God speaking life and dignity over all people. Because all people bear his image and are therefore worthy of dignity and honor. The hard truth is that though we carry that dignity and we carry that honor, we do not all equally carry the same giftedness or talents. Some are simply smarter than others. Others have a temperament that fits the culture they're in. If you're in America, um, well, and you're extroverted, you've won the social lottery. <laughs> See, we all have limitations. And this may be hard to believe, but this includes you. You have limitations. And limitation is simply a threshold that we reach 
and we have no ability to go further. So for me, there are moments with our toddler, whom I love dearly, like with all of my heart, that I cannot. Like if I do, it will be bad for me, it will be bad for him, it will be bad for our family. There are moments where I just don't have something to give. Oftentimes uh, it's like in the bathroom and we're talking about putting on undies <laughs> or putting on shorts and he's being a two-year-old, which is perfectly appropriate. Like this is my problem, not his. He's curious about the toilet and the toilet paper and the toothpaste, etc. You know, it's just like, there's lots of exciting things in the bathroom. My point is, is like, I can either receive the gift of my limits in that moment and ask Jessica to, to lead in that space, to help in that space, or I can power through and ignore that to mine and his detriment. So what are yours? What are your limits? S seriously, like if you have your phone, write the note. If you have a pen and paper, take a note. If you're single, that's a limit. If you're married, that's a limit. If you have lots of money, that's a limit. If you're poor, that's a limit. If you suffer from a chronic illness, that's a limit. I think you get the point. What is your limit? Helpful, helpful way to like diagnose what those limits are. What are the things that really frustrate you? And now, what if your limit was a gift? Just let that sink in for a moment. But what if you received your limit as a gift from God rather than the curse of your ability or the, the curse of like, or a curse at all? What do you think your life would look like? If that thing you perceive as a infringement on your life, impinging the way that you move in the world, what if that was a gift of God? See, when we consider John's life, we see that our limitations, they actually don't have to be our enemies. And I put this whole story forward because, um, you know, it would, be, it would be pretty easy to put Jesus forward. And in fact, that was what this teaching first was. It was a list of 16 times in the Gospel according to Mark where we see Jesus withdrawing into the wilderness, where we see him slowing down on a Sabbath, where we see him literally receiving limits to abide with God. I thought, my goodness, like, sometimes it's hard to relate to Jesus because, well, you know, he's Jesus. But John the Baptist, <laughs> I don't know, maybe you don't relate any better to John the Baptist, maybe like him wearing camel's hair and eating bugs in the desert. Um, but that like degree of separation was just so helpful. And for John, his limitations aren't their enemy. It's this guide along the journey with Jesus. See, to receive our limits as a gift can dramatically shift how we perceive our who and our what. Schizero, who, you know, his work on emotional health is kind of the backdrop in this whole series, he says that maturity in life is when someone is living within their God-given limits. In other words, that they're receiving their limits as a gift rather than a curse. So perhaps today, you get to do, not have to do, but you get to do a little emotional inventory. Just get to ask, like, man, where am I feeling overtired? Where do I feel burned out? Is there any anxiety going on in me? And so just do this, just run through your day Moment you get up, moment you go to sleep. When you've done that, run through your week. If you have it in you, <laughs> run through your month. Just the broad strokes. And if you notice, you're like, yeah, that thing gets under my skin. What do you complain a lot about? 
You know, th these areas of agitation, like th those might be indicators that you're fighting against your limits rather than receiving them as a gift. See, so to close, I want to share a little story with you. I recently had uh, the honor of officiating a wedding of a couple in our church. And they had a huge bridal party. Um, and there was one guy who was a groomsman, and he was, um, he's a bit wily. I don't know, he had a kind of a fun, gregarious little personality. And I was just thinking, like, it would have been ridiculous if this guy, in the midst of, even, even like when we're just doing the rehearsal, uh, played around and stepped into the role of the groom. If, if he just kind of like stood into that place, everyone would recognize that he is not only out of place, but that's an inappropriate place for him to be. That's not who he is. That's not what he's supposed to do. See, with John, he recognizes that Jesus, that everyone is going to him, that Jesus is receiving his bride. He doesn't want to step in the way of that. He knows who he is. And because the what of his life is not the most significant thing in his life, he can receive Jesus. In fact, his receiving of Jesus is the completion of joy. So I just want to put that forward to you, church. This, I think, for me, is perhaps one of the hardest things to do. Because, to be honest, having limits, it's not an easy thing to say. We celebrate the things that we break through in barriers. I mean, it's even in how we like talk about our life. Like we're, we want spiritual breakthrough. We want to go to the next level. We want to go deeper with Jesus. We want like, limits. <laughs> but that recognizing that, that God is the one who holds us. He hymns us in. He goes in front and behind us. He knows us intimately and intricately. And that when we live in that place of who we are, and we move from who we are and we do what we are meant to do, man, there is a place of rest and blessing and grace in that. And I would dare say there's a place of contentedness in that. That's what emotional health yields. As we attend to this stuff, it's not just that, like that's what wholeness is. It's that we're actually being made new. So this is the work for us. Is, is to look at this stuff, to do this little emotional inventory. Perhaps yours is just to say no. <laughs> Maybe yours is to like set a limit because you are deathly afraid of saying no to anything. You say yes to everything. And so however you feel the Spirit leading you in that, maybe you need a level of accountability. You can reach out to us and just say like, hey, here's where I'm at. We want to journey with you in this. As you jump online after in this little pop-up group, man, maybe you just say, here's my, here's my stuff. You embrace the brokenness. You live in vulnerability. You say, this is the stuff that I do not, I've been, I've been, I have been abusing this to limit and I want, I want to, I want to receive it. So let me just pray for you. As, as you step in into this, and we'll close. Yeah, Lord, this is not just a, a, a teaching that goes out into the ether. This is for a people whom you know and love, who call the Gateway Church their home. Um, this is for people who live in the city of Des Moines, 
who live in the metro of Des Moines, who are trying to practice the way of Jesus, to follow you, Jesus, in the midst of the rhythms and season of life that we find ourselves in. And there are seasons where you're inviting us to stretch and your invitation to stretch, that is your limit. So Lord, if this is a season of us being stretched, help us to receive that. If this is a season where we have ignored and abused our limits, Spirit, would you just give us eyes to see, like ears to hear? Would you help us to have hearts open to be perceptive to your wisdom? And ask, I'd ask Jesus that you would have us, that you would hold us, that you would re remind us that we are received by you. And that in that place, you would give us the courage to say that we are tired, to receive the rest that you have, that you have freely offered us. So we just ask that you would come, that you would come and, and help us to move toward healing, to move toward maturity, and to move toward greater union with you. Amen.